Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. Welcome to Latina Latino Stories. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is la doctora Vanessa Fonseca Chavez. Fonseca Chavez is an associate professor of English and an associate dean of diversity, equity, and inclusion for the College of Integrative Sciences and Arts at Arizona State University. Her research focuses on the contentions and legacies of colonialism in the Southwest United States and how Chicanx and indigenous communities navigate and contest violence and power in literary and cultural production. In 2020, she co-edited Querencia, Reflections on the New Mexico Homeland, published by University of New Mexico Press, with Levi Romero and Spencer Herrera. Bienvenida a este episodio, Vanessa. Thank you for having me, Elena. You grew up in New Mexico, correct? Tell me about growing up uh, Latina in this region. And this might be a, a little bit of a strange question, you know, growing up Latina in this region. Um, and I, I, I like to ask this question because, you know, our experiences can be so diverse. Um, although I grew up in Mexico, most of my adult life I've been in Ohio. Um, so I know that our regions are, are, are places of growing up and are shaped by that, you know, right, by the regions where we are. Uh, so that's why I asked that question. Well, I think it's a good question. And I think that um, I was just telling someone this morning that New Mexico is probably second to Texas in the amount of cultural pride Novo mm -hmm. Mexicanos have for their state. So right. I love that we're starting with question. And it's a special state for me because it's where I was born and raised and where I really developed my sense of place and identity as a Chicana. Mm -hmm. Although I will joke with people say that I didn't realize I was Chicana until I was about 24. <laughs> we grew up using Hispanic. Many people in New Mexico use uh, Spanish American. That's another story for another mm -hmm. time. Right. But I'm from various rural communities in the state of New Mexico because my family moved so much. My dad was uh, working in construction a lot. And so it took us to the northwest part of the state, which is where my grandmother on my mom's side of the family is from. And they've been from that region since the late 1800s. And my family, like many New Mexican families, have multiple generations in New Mexico dating mm. back to the late 1800s. So it's a special region because it has such a long history. Right. And that's not something I realized when I was growing up, but it was something that I now have as part of a, a central part of my research, really. Mm -hmm. And so I lived between two separate regions when I was growing up, northwest New Mexico, which is um, where Grants is located, And Grants is a former uranium mining boom town, but it was uh, settled in the late 1800s as a stop on the railroad. And then later, I moved to Coahuacan, New Mexico, which is in the northern part of the state. And it's what's considered really the sort of typical north when you read about it in literature and cultural mm -hmm. production. When they say North Mexico, this is really part of the heart of northern New Mexico. And that was really different for me than growing up in Grants because being Hispanic was much more salient in Kowaki than it was in northwestern New Mexico. Mm. So classes, 
with Hispanic teachers. I remember my third grade teacher, Mr. Valdez, brought a guitar to class, and he would sing La Bamba, and we would join in with him. <laughs> and then we would go to Spanish classes, not because it was part of any formalized bilingual education effort, but because it was such an important part of Northern New Mexico culture. And so I moved back to Grants when I was in sixth grade, and it was different being Hispanic there. Mm. And it was also that you didn't belong there, even though lots of other people looked like you. And again, it wasn't something that I realized until later on in my life what those what that really meant. But it was very different growing up in these two areas, both northern New Mexico, but one is just sort of the typical north and the other is in the northwest part of the state, which has a different history altogether. Wow. Yeah, that is very interesting. I And I guess it's the same since you compared uh, New Mexico and Texas uh, earlier. I think that has a similar feel, right? Um, in, in Texas, um, I grew up in a border town. And so South Texas, you know, is what I know. And it's very, a very different um, way of living there um, versus later on as an adult, I lived in Dallas, Texas. Um, and so very different, right? R- different in the same state, you have different ways of being or, or experiencing even your own identity, um, you know, as, as uh, Hispanic, Latinx in this in the same state. Um, and I can't even imagine what it is like to you know, maybe grow up in more West Texas, like Amarillo and, and, and places like that. So yeah, I, I, I can see that. I can see that. Um, tell me about your journey into higher education. Well, I don't know if I ever imagined myself in a path to higher education, mm. but I did know. I have a twin sister. She's amazing. She's a reporter for the Associated Press. Mm. So I didn't have uh, a lot of ambitions, I don't think, for higher education when I was growing up. Um, And that's to say that I really didn't have a lot of models around me for people who were pursuing higher education. I knew that I was a good student, Mm -hmm. and my twin sister and I were good students. Mm -hmm. And we, I think we sort of knew that our parents wanted us to go to college, although I don't recall them ever saying that out loud. Uh, neither of them have a college education. So I'm a first-generation college student. I can recall one time when we went to pick up my oldest sister from New Mexico Highlands University because she was participating in a summer camp there. And I remember thinking at the time, hey, I want to come here. <laughs> I didn't know why. I just thought the place was cool. It was in northern New Mexico in Las Vegas, and not somewhere that I wanted to be just because I saw my sister, my oldest sister there. Mm -hmm. But when I was in high school, we had someone come to the class and they were a pharmacist and they said that pharmacy is a good career for women who also want to raise families. And that's really all it took for me to say, I'm going to be a pharmacist. And so I applied to the University of New Mexico. It was the only institution I applied to. Our high school counselors had put us all together in the cafeteria, and we all applied to the same university together. Mm-hmm. And I went, and I'm not even sure how, I'm not sure how I got in. I'm not sure what the application process looked like. I just knew that I was there and I was going to be a pharmacy major, but I found out the more classes I took, the more I felt less passionate about pharmacy, generally mm-hmm. speaking. I wasn't super good at math and science, and so I don't know if I was trying to trick myself into thinking I needed to do this. Um, but as I started taking more Spanish classes, I became more enamored with Spanish language, with culture, with community, 
And I didn't grow up as a Spanish speaker, so part of my motivation for taking classes was to recover this heritage language that I didn't grow up with, mm -hmm. other than in isolated phrases and obviously in the cultural, you know, surroundings of my, my home environment. Mm -hmm. But I started taking Spanish classes, and then I decided that I would major in Spanish instead. And so I dropped my pharmacy major. Um, I also got pregnant in my second year of college, mm -hmm. and uh, that was unexpected. But it was an additional challenge that I sort of had to navigate. Um, and so I found myself as a mom, a second-year college student, uh, still trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I was pursuing Spanish because I was passionate about it, but I didn't think about what I was going to do with it. I got a minor in business management, and for some reason I wanted to work in HR. I thought that would be a cool job to have. <laughs> and so I... Over the course of the summer, I was finishing up my classes for my undergraduate degree, and I wanted to apply for an MBA program, and I was missing a class that I needed to take. And I didn't want to spend an entire semester taking one class with the possibility of applying to this master's program and not getting in. Mm -hmm. And I took a Spanish class that summer with the interim chair of the Spanish program, and I asked when the deadline was to apply for the Spanish program, and she said it was the next day. But she reassured me that she would help me get all of my application materials in and that I should also record a language tape to be able to teach Spanish. That was the first time I ever thought about teaching Spanish <laughs> as a career. Mm -hmm. And so over, I stumbled through this language tape with all the imprecise words, and I started recording over and over again because I hadn't mastered Spanish at that point in my life. And the next day, I had all my application materials in, and before I knew it, I was doing a master's degree in Hispanic Southwest Studies, and I was teaching Spanish. Wow. And so, I love the story because it's, I never, again, I never thought in my life that that's something I would want to do with my career, but now I can't imagine doing anything else. Absolutely. Yeah. So some of those turns happen to us. And I think um, in that uh, sense, I also had <clears throat> sort of that um, experience, right, where I started actually in, in the medical field too, um, health sciences, and then switched um, along the way. Uh, Vanessa, you and I have similar interest in oral history and in doc documenting Latinx communities. Talk to us uh, about why this is particularly important to you. I So I have, um, in this master's program in Hispanic Southwest Studies at UNM, there were three different areas of focus. There was heritage language, and I had the opportunity to teach heritage language courses for two year, for three years. And then there was the Chicano literature aspect, and then there was the Southwest folklore aspect. And mm -hmm. we had really great professors in all these areas, um, Dr. Maria Dolores Gonzalez, Enrique La Madrid, and Tavia Navarro And as part of the folklore aspect of it, we listened to a lot of oral histories because this was about people mm -hmm. telling their story and also giving cultural information. And so I thought it was really interesting to hear these stories, and these were you know, cassette recordings from the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. And it was really eye-opening for me to listen to these voices from the past, and I was enamored by them. Mm. And I started thinking more and more about oral histories, although my primary focus was on literature, and so I didn't think much about how to incorporate oral histories until much later. Mm. Um, I didn't think that Gloria Cuadras knows this, but when I first met her at a MALC conference, the Mujeres Activas en Detrás y Cambio Social conference, mm -hmm. she presented on oral histories, and I was in love. 
<laughs> with the idea of histories, with how people go about conducting oral history interviews, what they do with that research. And I'm lucky to have her as a colleague now at Arizona State University. But I, um, it was really serendipitous. It was, it was listening. It was being in a place where you could listen to these voices and then want to hear more of those right. voices. Mm-hmm. I did a couple of oral history interviews for a sociolinguistics project that I did for one of my classes. And I was able to interview some people on uh, Latino identity in Grants, New Mexico. And so I went back and talked to a lot of folks that I graduated from high school with along with folks who in my community were well-known community historians that I hadn't had the chance to know before, but I was able to connect with them. People like Avedicio Pena, who wrote a number of books uh, in his life on Northwestern New Mexico, but the first time I talked to him was through an oral history interview. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Vanessa, your background as a Chicana, Latina, and your work with Latinx, Chicanx students who, like you, grew up bicultural and bilingual, reflects your research interests and the way you connect with your students. Tell me about how you approach working with minoritized communities, especially at your institution and, and given your current role. Sure, this has changed quite a bit in my career because when I was at the University of New Mexico, my my teaching interest was in Spanish for heritage language mm-hmm. students. That's something you know well, mm-hmm. and I look forward to having a talk with you about that. Absolutely. But um, this mm-hmm. is what I do at UNN as a heritage language student myself. And I remember reflecting on when I wrote my application for the master's program. I wrote my personal letter as if I were the only heritage language speaker that ever existed in this world. (laughs) And of course we come to find out that there are so many students that are in the same situation. I mean, the Americanization process stripped the Spanish language from my grandparents and my parents, Mm -hmm. and we're accustomed to recuperate that language as part of our cultural upbringing and our connection to to our past and to, you know, where we're going in the future as well. But I think that, so much of what I wanted to do at that point was really connect students to what they had lost mm. through colonization, through, um, you know, relegating Spanish to private spaces versus public spaces, things we continue to battle with today. And so a lot of it was about uh, cultural linguistic trauma, dealing with linguistic trauma and thinking about language preservation. And then using Chicano literature as a bilingual type of literature and bicultural type of literature to understand the effects of, you know, language trauma on Mm -hmm. our students. Mm -hmm. And when I ASU as a doctoral student, um, my PhD is in Spanish cultural studies. What I learned is that the populations of heritage speakers differ even from state to state. And so most of the students with ASU were first-generation students who didn't need a 101-level Spanish. They needed a 300-level, a 400-level, because they were monolingual Spanish speakers for the majority of their lives. And so that was very different than what I had seen in New Mexico. But as, again, I continued to to teach Spanish for heritage learners or bilingual students at ASU, but then I started to look at that as a larger component of culture and literature. And so I shifted a bit um, after I got my PhD because I couldn't find a job in Spanish to teach Chicano literature. And that's, mm-hmm. um, that's a whole conversation. But it's, mm-hmm. Spanish departments, departments writ large are really, um, they tend to privilege the more traditional forms of literature 
And Chicano literature is almost always an afterthought in both English and Spanish departments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when I graduated with my PhD in Spanish cultural studies, I applied for lots of jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of that was uh, decided by the closest access to my son. And again, that's another story for another day. Mm -hmm. But I found myself in lots of situations where there wasn't a privileging of Chicano literature within Spanish departments. Mm -hmm. And that's true of English departments as well. They tend to privilege really more traditional forms of literature. Mm -hmm. And Chicano studies often is an afterthought Mm -hmm. for these programs. I'd like to think that it's different today, but I can't say that with any amount of certainty. And so when I started at the University of Wyoming, my position was in the English department and Latino studies, and I was still able to teach Chicano literature, but I did it in a Latino studies program and in an English program, and for the very first time in my career, not in Spanish. Mm. And so it was really interesting to find the words to even convey what I was trying to express Mm. in English, which is my first language, but because I had taught for eight eight years in no language other than Spanish, Mm -hmm. it was really difficult to make that transition. And it was interesting to make it in Wyoming because so few of our students spoke Spanish. And so when I was looking for the words, the students couldn't help me out in the same ways that they might have been able to do in Arizona and New Mexico. Right, right. and I and I um, I'm interested in, interested in how this connects, right? The what your experiences and the in just profes- professional and personal ex- experiences connect to this um, word cadencia, right? Um, and I have to before I um, I read um, how you define cadencia in one of your recent articles. I wanted to say that although that word is familiar to me. Um, it's only until recently that I've seen it, um, you know, as um, um, in, in books that, that have been published um, and articles as a way of thinking and, and working uh, with uh, Latinx students um, that I hadn't thought about before, right? Like as a methodology, right, of engagement with our community. Um, so you describe uh, Querencia as, quote, is this idea of how do we feel a sense of place or an attachment to place? And how do we navigate the compli- the complicated aspects of home and community and all these different environments that we live in? When we're thinking about the places and spaces that helps us to be our most authentic selves. Tell me about this concept. How does that fit into your work with students and community? So much of this concept is, I think as someone from, from New Mexico, we hold this concept really dear to us because it's a concept I've heard for many, many years. Though I never really thought, like you said, to mm-hmm. think about it in, as a methodology or as a framework for mm-hmm. how we engage with students or how we engage with For example, in my current position as someone who does diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, querencia means, you know, querer is a desire or a Mm -hmm. want. And then herencia, we say, is either an inheritance or a heritage. So it's something we deeply desire within us. Um, It's Mm multi-generational, which means that these are things that we inherit from generations prior to us and things that we are going to pass on. The the book, the co-edited book on querencia, 
has multiple frameworks that you can draw from the literature, which I think is really exciting. Mm -hmm. um, I already come to this work with a really deep sense of place, as do all of the authors in the collection. And part of the complicated aspect of this is that we come from a region that has been through multiple colonial periods. Mm -hmm. So my heritage is linked to Spanish colonization, which dispossessed and conquered indigenous people. Mm -hmm. But I'm also in a region where those same people were colonized by the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so the complicated aspect of it is how do we all live in the same place, in the same space with a really innate sense of who we are and where we're from, but we're navigating colonial violence and we're navigating the difficulty of multiple people claiming this place as home. Mm -hmm. And so part of this is, you know, linked to the work that I do right now with my students because they're also all coming from different places. And this doesn't necessarily mean that Cadencia is a physical place. It could be, you know, a thought, an idea, a sentiment, and how they carry those with them wherever they go. So we're thinking about, you know, ASU, for example, is the largest institution in the United States. We have 130,000 students who are all bringing complicated aspects of home and community with them. Mm -hmm. How students think about their identities in intersectional ways, in multi-generational ways, in non-Western ways, mm -hmm. in communal ways. And I'm asking them to think about how do we all live together in this place as our most authentic selves? Right. I do this by, we talk about Gloria Saldua and her notion mm -hmm. that she says, I am a turtle, I carry home on my back wherever I go. Mm -hmm. And so we think about what does it mean to carry your home, but what does it also mean, you know, in Gloria Saldua's own life to experience violence at home? So when that cadencia space is not warm and fuzzy and it's not filled with love, how do we how do we navigate that also as a complicated aspect of cadencia? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Vanessa, what should we as educators and institutions on higher ed, um, what should we do to create the spaces for our students? Um, aside from maybe this conversation or uh, maybe a cohort, a, a, a group, you know, meeting, what other things like can we do in the classroom to, um, to, um, what's the word? Sorry, I'm blanking out. Mm. To foster, I guess, to foster this um, concept or framework of cadencia, uh, whether it's inside the classroom or outside the classroom. Well, I was really excited to see that the American Association of Hispanics and Higher Education mm -hmm. recently titled their conference Cadencia. Right. I was uh, there. <laughs> and I was, oh, you were there? I yes. was there too. Oh, great. <laughs> great. And so um, I, was, I was excited to see the kind of frameworks that folks were employing. I think what is really interesting about Cadencia is that at the base level, it is how we feel a sense of place or an attachment to place, but it goes much deeper. And so one of the contributors to the Cadencia collection, um, Moises Gonzalez, has a framework on community organizing. And this is really based on what he calls tareas de obligación. And this means for us, a fundamental responsibility to community. And so when we think about that in higher education, um, ASU's charter is one of inclusion, not exclusion. Mm -hmm. But the really great part for me is it asks, what is our fundamental responsibility to the communities we serve? And that for me is a cadencia phrase. And it asks us not to think about, you know, 
not to not to sort of get bogged down in the minutia of all of it, but what do you feel as an educator is your fundamental responsibility to students? Mm-hmm. And those answers can vary, but I don't think that anybody would say, I don't want to have a space of inclusion for students, right? Mm-hmm. And Cadencia is about that. It's about creating belonging. Mm-hmm. And there are so many institutions now that are really focusing on diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. And so I think this framework works really nicely within here. But um, an additional framework that's brought to the table is uh, what uh, Patricia Trujillo, uh, Corinne Sanchez, and Scott Davis say as kitchen table organizing. And so using important spaces to have conversations in their chapter, they talk about calling people in and calling people out Mm. and the kind of relationships that have to be cultivated to be able to engage in that kind of practice. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean to be in a reciprocal um, relationship with somebody? What does it mean to be in a space where everybody respects everybody? And so even if you have to call somebody out, there's a respect in that room right. for each other where you can really have difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. And, and it just reminded me as you were describing this and how um, those values, right? It's, it's almost like family values, right? We, we love each other, uh, but if you're wrong, we'll correct you lovingly. <laughs> um, and you have built this space where this can happen, right? Where people feel safe and not judged. Um, and then move on to continue, you know, to create this space of um, inclusion and belonging. Um, Doctora Fonseca, what are you working on right now? I know we're it's at the end of the academic year, we're going into the summer, and I don't know if you shift uh, into um, I don't know, more research, or uh, if you're working on something right now, what are, what are you, what are your plans in the next few months? Right now, I have a uh, Whiting Foundation public engagement seed grant, mm. and I'm really excited about it because it's about uh, how rural communities in eastern Arizona and western New Mexico narrate their sense of place. Mm. And this is a really interesting region because many folks migrated from central New Mexico to western New Mexico in the late 1800s and then over to Arizona. Most of these folks during that time period were sheep herders, and so they were moving from more populated areas of New Mexico into less populated areas, and then of course into Arizona. What I am working on right now is a series, it will be a book at some point, on uh, these economic migrations from the late 1800s to about the 1940s, when you see the shift from sheep herding to cattle ranching and then to other types of industries like copper mining in Arizona and other kinds of mining in New Mexico. But thinking about that specific period of time during the statehood period and territorial periods of New Mexico and Arizona and how those Hispanic communities through their migrations are making sense of who they are and what their communities are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, congratulations on that fellowship. I know it's a, it's a competitive uh, fellowship. <clears throat> uh, do you have anything else that you would like to add to this conversation? No, this has been really great. I appreciate you reaching out, and uh, I appreciate the conversation. Great. Vanessa, gracias por esta conversación. A todos, gracias por escucharnos, y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Mm-hmm.